thanks everybody. Nice to sit together. Uh, we have about 45 minutes and uh, I want to begin by uh, thanking Goshen and Jodo and the New York Zen Center for Contemplative Care for inviting me to talk to you guys this morning. It's a real privilege. Um, I really appreciate um, the vision of the center and what the center does. <clears throat> but even more than that, <clears throat> I appreciate what you guys do. Uh, we live in a materialistic culture and the ultimate material object is the human body. So people who know about the human body and how it works and how to fix it and understand it are really special people and we appreciate them a lot. But not only that, you guys on top of that have the spirit and the vision to want to do this program. So that makes you a little different. And I guess you're having a pretty good program so far. As uh, he said, we're about halfway through it. And I hope the program is uh, refreshing you, giving, a new, giving you a new way to look at what you do. So I want to start by <clears throat> talking about the Eightfold Path because I know that that's the framework for your study. Uh, right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. That describes the whole of the Buddhist path, and I'm sure you've had a lot of discussion about these eight practices. <clears throat> but like all great spiritual teachings, you know, you never get past them. You keep talking about them over and over again. So let me give you uh, my take on them for today, uh, because uh, that's the context for, for what I want to say about right action, uh, the fourth of the Eightfold Path, and specifically uh, right action in the wholehearted response to suffering. So, the first thing I want to say is that if you think about what the Noble Eightfold Path is, it's a complete and all-inclusive uh, way of life. It includes everything, from the way you think, the way you speak, uh, the quality of your attention and concentration, <clears throat> all the way up to the way you earn your living. So the Buddhist path doesn't conceive of spiritual practice as something that you do along with other things that you do. It conceives of spiritual practice as the whole of a life, uh, a transformed life. So even though I know that you're in the midst of a training program uh, in which you hope to learn things that will help you professionally, will enhance your sense of what you're doing professionally, <clears throat> which is good because you are engaged in a profession that is helping people, so you do want to get better at it, make it more sustainable, uh, make it happier, brighter for yourself so that you can pass that brightness on to others. But in the context of the Eightfold Path, 
your practice is about your whole life, not just your <clears throat> skill as a doctor or a nurse. It's about a total transformation of your life, which involves not only your work, but everything you do, your relationships, your everyday conduct. I've, I've worked with uh, medical professionals before, but mostly I've, I've worked with um, people who teach conflict resolution techniques to professionals, to, to mediators, uh, lawyers. And I've, and I have a couple of friends that I've worked with for years on this, and they have a great model. They're really well known for it, and they teach, you know, they do programs like this to teach people skills, <clears throat> how to employ that model. <clears throat> but eventually, in doing that, uh, they realized that uh, good as their model was, uh, it was no good unless the people that they were training in their model were wiser and more compassionate so that they could employ the model. <laughs> so they realized, well, how are we training people to be wiser and more compassionate? And, and they didn't really have an answer to that. And that's where the meditation practice comes into it. And, and I guess the same is true here. Because to really develop yourself as a physician or a nurse practitioner or a psychiatrist or whatever you do does mean that you have to develop yourself as a human being. The Eightfold Path is actually uh, a circle. It just goes round and round and round. You walk each step and when you get to the last step, the next step is the first step. And then the second, and you go round and round, beginning over and over again. And every time you begin, you begin at a new level uh, with more depth. And, and also, uh, every step in the path includes all the others. So really there aren't, it's not an eightfold path, because every, every fold in the path includes all the other folds. But uh, in order to talk about something, or conceptualize something, you need to define it in a particular way, and artificial as that may be, it's necessary. So we say the path begins with right view. But right view is really the end of the path, right? A, a wise, compassionate, deep understanding of human life. And yet, uh, you begin with right view. So, for example, <clears throat> right view, in this case, might be having the view uh, that says, well, I'm pretty good at what I do, but I think I might need to do the New York Zen Center for Contemplative Care program. I think maybe there's something missing and I should, I should do that program. That would be right view. And right intention would be, well, I'll sign up. <laughs> and having signed up and paid for it, I'm showing up to every meeting. So you're exercising your practice of right intention right now by, by being here today, after already having had right view. But then you do the program and you begin to notice and practice differently maybe in your conduct and your speech. 
Maybe you uh, are practicing mindfulness in various ways. Maybe you're doing some meditation practice. Some of you said you do that anyway. I have been doing it. Others of you may be are beginning it uh, with the program. And as you do that, it's going to make your view a little different and your intention a little stronger. And then maybe you do more meditation, which gives you more space, more wisdom, and so on. A better view, deeper view, and on and on and on, forever. Forever. So this, this program is not forever. It began, and the chances are really good that it will end at some point, and then you will have completed it. But you will not have completed the development of wisdom and compassion. I don't think that that will end. I hope it doesn't end with the end of this program. You'll keep going with it. I think it's likely that you'll forget about it uh, after the program is over for a little while. Maybe for the rest of your life you'll forget about it because things come up and you're busy people. But eventually, since you are a human being, you will take it up again. And you will develop it fully, if not in this lifetime, then in some other life. So that's the spirit, that's the background, that's the basic sort of attitude behind what I want to say to you today about right action. Specifically, how do we receive suffering? How do we practice in the midst of suffering? So everybody knows that Buddhism is very famous for its emphasis on suffering. First noble truth. All conditioned existence has the characteristic of suffering. Dukkha. Unsatisfactoriness. Second, suffering has a cause. Third, suffering can end. And the Noble Eightfold Path is the fourth noble truth, the path that brings an end to suffering. In fact, the four noble truths are actually on a medical model, right? They're exactly, and the Buddha is often called the great physician. Because it's define the illness, understand the cause of the illness, and the remedy to undo the cause and therefore cure the illness. It's exactly how the Buddha looked at it. But of course, there are many questions in this very simple formulation. And maybe the first and most important one is, what exactly is suffering? What do we mean, in this case, by suffering? And there are lots of answers to this question. Zen Buddhism is a school of Mahayana Buddhism. And in Mahayana Buddhism, suffering is understood in a, in a nuanced and complex way. Instead of practicing to end suffering, bodhisattvas, which is the name we use for the ideal Mahayana Buddhist practitioner, bodhisattvas vow to completely understand and embrace suffering. That's because the primary commitment and the primary motivation of bodhisattvas is compassion. Bodhisattvas are not interested in ending suffering for themselves 
another individual while others continue to suffer. Bodhisattvas want to be with suffering beings in order to help them. But also, Bodhisattvas understand that the real meaning of ending suffering is going beyond the self that suffers. That is, learning how to care about and identify with others rather than with the self. So bodhisattvas realize there's no other way to end suffering. The very meaning of ending suffering is to live with full and complete compassion, to stand in solidarity with sentient beings, to feel what sentient beings feel, to completely become the suffering of sentient beings. That's the only way you could end suffering. To see reality truly is to understand this. So, for bodhisattvas, compassion is not a noble and valuable option. It, it is simply the truth of how things actually are. And to live that truth is the fundamental way that bodhisattvas bring healing to the world. Now, you guys have long training and you have skills and you have the capacity because you have those skills to help people and you want to be good at those skills and you want to get better and better at them as you continue to do them and you and you do and that is of course essential and bodhisattvas want to do that they want to develop skills to help people that is not unimportant. But also, bodhisattvas want to base those skills on a real understanding and embrace of suffering. They want to be able to share that suffering with the people they're taking care of so that the people will feel completely accompanied in their suffering and illuminated and magnified in their suffering. Even as bodhisattvas are working to alleviate that suffering to the best of their ability. Maybe we don't think about this every day, but I think we all know that there is no end to physical and emotional suffering. Sickness, old age and death, loss, despair, hopelessness, anguish. These will not be eliminated as long as human beings have bodies, hearts, minds and souls. But if we really understand suffering, we can bear all these forms of suffering with true strength and quietly and with equanimity. And when we do that, 
Suffering is not suffering. Difficult as it may sometimes be, it will be life at its most truthful and noble. So what is suffering and how can we practice suffering in such a way as to be a blessing for the people we're taking care of? Lately, uh, you know, our community has a Dharma seminar and we, we've been for decades and decades, we study every week. And right now in our Dharma seminar, uh, we're studying. Uh, by the way, everybody's invited to our community. It's every day Zen, anytime. Check it out on the website, you can join. Right now we've been involved in a long uh, study of a text <clears throat> by a Buddhist sage uh, named Vasubandhu. And it's, Vasubandhu is a, a famous sage of a, a particular Buddhist teaching called Vijnapti Matrata. Vijnapti Matrata means something like, uh, translates as something like representation only or concept only. So in, the, in this text, Vasubandhu is telling us that we are fundamentally mistaken. Fundamentally mistaken in the way we ordinarily see and experience the world. We see things as separate and weighty and over there. Here's me over here, there's you over there, and there's the world around us. In other words, we only see three things. And this sounds ridiculous, but when you think about it, it's really true. There's only three things in the world. Number one, me. <laughs> number two, everybody else. And number three, the whole cosmos, which is a stage upon which the drama between me and everybody else unfolds. <laughs> That's basically the world we live in. Everybody lives in that world. I mean, it sounds crazy when you say it, but isn't that true? And it's a very tough proposition because the second and third categories are very large. But the first category, 33 and a third percent of reality, is very tiny. So we have a big problem. Others in the world are always having a big impact on us. And we're not able to do all that much about it, which makes life pretty tough. And we are all bound to suffer. And, and of course we fear that suffering. And we organize things as well as possible to avoid it in any way we can. And every now and then when we cannot avoid it, we rise up and do battle with it. And there are some victories, but a lot of losses. And I wouldn't be surprised if there were not some people who actually decide to become doctors and nurses and healthcare professionals in order to shore themselves up enough to do battle with suffering and win. Maybe you, when you think about it, that's why you're a doctor, so you can do battle with suffering and win. But of course, you don't win. 
I, I often say to my friends who are doctors, are you aware that you are not ultimately going to heal a single patient? Do you, do you think of that? Every patient you ever work with will die. And sometimes I say to them, uh, when you fill out the death certificate, there's a line on there, you know, cause of death. You should write in there, life. Because life is actually the cause of death. All other causes of death are incidental. The actual cause of death is life. <clears throat> the Vijnapti Matrata teachings, which are very detailed and very sophisticated actually, are saying that all of that that I've been just talking about is completely incorrect. And that's not so bad, but the problem is that it is incorrect and it's the reason why we suffer because we have that view. Because the actual truth is, and think about this, everything we experience is our experience. It's not weighty and over there. It's very intimate and present right in the middle of our hearts and our lives. All the operations of our senses are intimate and present in the middle of where we are. Right now I hear the sound of the wind. The sound of the wind is not over there. The sound of the wind is literally inside my body and mind. Others are not outside of me. They are inside of me. When I, right now, you know, you are, you are inside my consciousness, right? My visual apparatus is inside of me. And I have impressions of you intimately experienced in my body. Others are not outside of me. They are me. And I am them. And the only world that we can possibly live in is the world of our experience. Any world that we cannot experience directly through our senses, and in Buddhism the senses include thinking, feeling, and imagination. Anything that is not cognizable in that way, doesn't exist for us. So life for us is literally and truly, and I think the cognitive sciences in their analysis of perception, you know, now corroborate these ancient teachings. Life is the life we experience through our senses, mind, and heart. So there is nothing that is over there or not intimate with ourselves. The only thing we have is our experience moment after moment. That's the only truth we know. And if we look at our experience, we do understand that it is largely conceptual. I say, there's the wind. It's the wind, and I hear the wind. I say, that's my cousin, and I see the person in front of me. 
All our experiences are mediated by our conceptualizations. And all our experiences depend on consciousness. If there's no brain that somehow, I don't know how, nobody knows how, opens us to consciousness, then there's no experience and there's no world for us. So that, that's what the Vijnapti Matrata teachings are all about. Now to be sure, there's no way we can eliminate our conceptual frameworks, and we wouldn't want to, because that's the way our human mind works. But the important point is, when we know our conceptual frameworks as conceptual frameworks, and we experience them that way, we can be free of them. We no longer need to be spun around by them. And they no longer can be the chief cause of our suffering. And, and I think you can appreciate what I'm saying. It, it does make sense, I think. And it's a, it's a good idea. But I think it has to be more than an idea. It has to be something that we train ourselves in. And that we see in our perception and that we feel in our hearts. This is, I think, the point of our spiritual practice ongoingly, to become more and more intimate with our actual human experience, to become more and more intimate with others and the world. And when we do that, Suffer, suffering stops being something that we're frightened of, something alien to us, a kind of enemy to be held at bay. Suffering becomes a valuable and necessary part of our being human together. And when we feel suffering that way, and really recognize that that's what it is, and has always been, our relationship to it totally changes. Now we can appreciate it and see its depth. Even though we're trying our best to alleviate the suffering, we're no longer in a battle with it. We appreciate it. And the Vijnapti Matrata teachings are actually the fundamental sort of theoretical basis of Zen meditation. In Zen meditation practice, and I know uh, some of you do other forms of meditation, so I'm specifically talking here about uh, the Zen approach to meditation, and maybe even more specifically uh, Soto Zen that I practice. In Zen meditation, we're, we're simply sitting down in the middle of the present moment of being alive. Uh, yes, like I said in, the, in our little brief meditation in, in the beginning, we, we pay attention to our posture, we pay attention to our breathing, and, and the idea is that you keep coming back to your posture and your breathing whenever you lose track, but the point is not to be keeping track of posture and breathing. The point is to be returning again and again to this simply the intimate experience of being alive. And I think I said that in the beginning. Let's just sit here 
with the actual feeling of being alive, which is breathing, right? Consciousness, body. Those are the three elements of being a living human being. Being alive in the breath, in the body, in sight and sound, in thinking, in feeling, in sensation. So when we sit in zazen, zen meditation, that's what we're doing. We're cutting through our conceptual thinking. Now, such thinking might be present when we're sitting, but when we're sitting, we know the thinking for what it is, and we can appreciate it for what it is. We don't need to be compelled by it, captured by it, upset by it, even if it's unpleasant, we can appreciate. I'm alive. There's a thought. There's no longer anything whatsoever in our experience that must be denied or avoided. Whatever comes, comes. And it goes. That's the experience of Zen meditation. Well, you might think, well, not when I meditate. It's not, what it is. it's not how it is when I meditate. Well, I don't know about that. I think what I just described is probably your meditation. Even though you might not think so. Because you have a habit, like everybody else, of seeing yourself in a particular way. You completely take it for granted. This is the way I am. So you're not able to see some other way that you also are. We are all, this is the, this is the legacy of being a human being. We are all very convinced that we are separate substantial persons with various built-in condition characteristics. And because we see this in such a habitual way, we're not used to seeing that we are also something more than this, but it's there. And I guarantee you that if you keep on sitting, with regularity and with some faithfulness, you will appreciate what I'm talking about. Your point of view will become lighter. Your sense of self will be more gently and flexibly held. You'll have a lot more patience with yourself, a lot more patience with others. And to our point here, a lot more patience with all forms of human suffering. I think if you look at it closely, you'll see that the usual view of suffering is that the sufferer is to fail somehow. Maybe, you know, you don't consciously think that way, but if you look at it, you'll see that there's a lot of truth to that. And maybe this is a biblical idea and we're all influenced by the Bible 
even those of us who didn't grow up in Western cultures, if we live in Western, Western cultures, it's sort of like everywhere. The Bible and the, and the ideology of the Bible is a, sort of like a deep thought in Western cultures. The Bible says that human beings suffer because they are sinners, they are arrogant, they don't obey God, and suffering is a kind of punishment. And even if the suffering is clearly not our fault, and we would never, you know, think that it's our fault if we get sick, you know, it's not our fault. Even so, somehow, spiritually, we feel that to suffer is to be in some deeply disturbing way wrong, abnormal, a failure. The opposite of suffering in, in this case is, is health. If we're healthy, we're normal, we're successful, we're not wrong. To suffer is to be defective. And I really think that when people are suffering a lot, that's a big part of the suffering. The feeling that there's something, deep, something deeply wrong with me. So as healers, I think we need to have another view. We need to have a bigger view than that. You know, in our Dharma meetings, and this is true, all spiritual traditions do this. They, they chant, they pray for people who need healing. They pray for the healing of this one and the healing of that one. They pray for the end of the suffering of war and all these kinds of forms of suffering. But when we say, may she heal, may he heal, we don't necessarily mean that the person will become physically well, and that's entirely what we mean by healing. We hope that they become physically well. And if, if we're you, we do our best to make sure that happens. But I think we do understand that healing is a larger category than this. There can be a healing of the heart, a healing of the soul, which can be a profound form of healing, and sometimes even promote physical healing. Maybe that's a more profound healing than physical healing. To heal is to become whole. To become whole is to fully embrace your life and all of life as it really is. And, and above all, healers should understand this point. And we should be looking at the person in the hospital bed, not as a pathetic person who needs the help <coughs> excuse me, of a stronger and more skillful person like us, <coughs> but rather as a dignified human being who is now, by virtue of her suffering, experiencing life at a greater depth than ever before. We should look at our patients, look and see in our patients awesome creatures who have the capacity just by being who they are to teach us something about our lives that we don't yet know. Because we too are embodied human beings and if not now, then very soon we also will be suffering in more or less the same way 
Suffering is a tremendous gift. Suffering is the truth. Well, I hope all that doesn't strike you as being a little over the top. <laughs> but I think it's all true, I, and I mean it. I really do. Let me close with a little uh, possible exercise just to make this practical, right? All of this is, you know, what are you going to do with all that? But here's an exercise that I suggest. You can actually, you can actually practice what I'm saying. So here's the exercise. It's really simple. <clears throat> Every time you are going to encounter a patient, and you can do this even if you're an emergency room doc. Every time you are about to encounter a patient, prepare for that patient. This preparation takes just a moment. Just say to yourself, somehow, make your mind turn on the thought, I am now going to be encountering a sacred and very important human being who is, in this moment, when they see me, going to be entering into a crucial moment of their lives. And I have uh, never been a physician, but I, I have been many times a patient, and I feel that way. When I go to see the doctor or the whoever, you know, the healthcare person, I feel like this is not the regular time in my life. This is a special moment in my life where I'm going to be doing something really important. It's a moment of truth, right? It really is whenever you go to healthcare professionals. So the professionals should see it that way too. So just in a moment, you remember that. And when you are remembering it, <clears throat> you can take three breaths. Now, if you're busy, you don't maybe have time for three breaths. One. Anyway, you're going to breathe anyway, right? So for one breath, use the breath to be aware. Breathing in, breathing out, one breath, and in that breath, hold the patient as a sacred individual in your heart. So I hope you can do that. I hope you can take a breath, and in that breath, somehow feel the sacredness of the encounter, the sacredness of the person. And you also may notice, if you're subtle enough, you may notice in that one breath all kinds of other things, too. Like, ugh, another one. Or, Jesus, I'm tired. Or, do I really have to go and look at this person now? In other words, there's a lot of avoidance or <clears throat> aversion. Or maybe leap over the person to the solutions to their suffering. <clears throat> Jump over the suffering. Don't, there's no suffering here. There's just, what do I do? Probably that happens. So what I'm suggesting is before that, before you go into that mode, give yourself just that one breath to relax into, this is a suffering human being. Forget my skills for this breath. Face toward the suffering. Face toward the person. Be gentle with yourself. Take that moment and then go do your stuff. And when you're doing your stuff, the exercise goes on here, when you're doing your stuff, 
have as fierce a focus as you possibly can on the person himself or herself. Look at the person. Don't just think about the medicine. Look at the person. Take them in fully. Listen to them if they're able to talk to you. And you've been trained to listen for certain things. Do that, but extend that. Listen not only for the medical information that's pertinent, also listen to the person, the humanity of the person, the spirit of the person. It doesn't take any more time to do this than it does to listen for everything else. Just take the person into your heart and really listen to them. Cut through your boredom or your stress and forget about yourself for a second and just look and listen. And really, I think if you practice this exercise, it will make your work more relaxing and more meaningful. I don't know if it will make you a better doctor or not, or a better nurse or not. Maybe it will. But it will make your experience of your work much stronger, I think. Anyway, try it. Give yourself like a couple of days to try it as often as you can. You'll forget most of the time, but you'll remember sometimes. And the more you remember, the more you'll do it. Try it for a couple of days and see. And in a way, that exercise is putting into operation all that I was talking about earlier when I was giving you Vasubandha's teaching of Vijnapti Matrata. So that's what I wanted to say to you today. And it took a little longer than I thought it might take. So we're really at the end of our time. And I don't know if we can stick around for five or ten minutes more if you have anything you want to say and I can respond. I'm happy to stick around for a few more minutes if you can. No, we want Norman, thank you so much. It's always a deep joy. And uh, of course, it would be great if folks want to have this opportunity to talk to with Norman about questions or 